Good evening. The late Elliot Dobby once told me a story that still irritated them. 30 years later, he shared a program with the then also assistant professor William York Tyndall in the English department here before the war, I think. Tyndall somehow contrived to get a copy of Dobby's speech, and because Tyndall was speaking first, he proceeded to give a paraphrase of Elliot Dobby's speech, leaving Dobby, uh, who was a polite man, pretty much speechless when it came time for him to speak. Every time I introduce a speaker and find his speech in front of me, I have an overwhelming impulse to give a thorough introduction and see what happens. The next lectures in this series, for those who are surviving week one of Rare Book School, will be next week when on Tuesday and Wednesday, Fred Schreiber will be repeating the Rosenbach lectures that he gave at the University of Pennsylvania last spring, this past spring, and uh, being repeated here by kind permission of the University of Pennsylvania through the good offices of Dan Traster. This evening, it's a great pleasure to welcome an old friend of Rare Book School, Bill Reese, who will be talking about three Americana booksellers. Thank you, Terry. You're, you're welcome to give my speech if you'd like to. The selling of rare books has always been a personal business and has happily remained so, even in a more detached age in which the specialist catalog bookseller predominates over the generalist walk-in bookstore, and the computer is rapidly becoming a necessity rather than a luxury for antiquarian booksellers. The central factor in the business is still, in my opinion, the faith that all buyers desire and any but the most well-versed must have in the knowledge and integrity of the purveyors of the high-priced and esoteric wares they wish to acquire. Obtaining good material, cataloging it and describing it properly, and putting the right price on a piece are three disparate talents which make a good antiquarian bookseller. Convincing others the importance of a book or pamphlet and justifying the accompanying bill sometimes make a great one. My talk will center on three booksellers, three firms actually, since one of these was a family affair, who I think were great booksellers in my own field of Americana. Americana has separated itself into a distinct subfield of bookselling since the 1840s. It is natural for it to be a somewhat separate discipline because it really requires equal parts and interest in the minutiae of history and of bibliography. For a knowledgeable dealer, this has some great advantages, since an ugly duckling of a pamphlet can be a diamond in the rough. In London in the 1850s, the field was open enough so Henry Stevens could be the only man in a room full of experts to spot a Bay Psalm book for what it was in a lot of old religious books. That kind of thing doesn't happen much anymore, but even today, there's often a wide enough gap between one person's understanding of the importance of a piece of printed Americana and another's to create what the arbitragers call a highly imperfect market. The translation from duckling to diamond is both in perceiving the importance of the piece and in explaining it to the customer. I first became involved in the Americana book world around 1970. Although I didn't know it at the time, a major generational shift was underway. 
The sale of Thomas W. Streeter's great collection of Americana, sold between the fall of 1966 and the fall of 1969, proved to be a watershed for both prices and personnel in the business. The sale marked the end of the active careers of both Peter Decker and Lindley and Charles Everstott, although both firms played a major role in the sale. It was also the last major showing of Michael Walsh of Goodspeeds as a market force in Americana. Henry Stephen Stiles and Son, another of the leaders in the field from the firm's resurgence in the early 20th century, was sorely handicapped by the death of its senior partner, Roland Tree, shortly before the sales began. At the same time, in the later sessions, Warren Howell and Ken Nevinsall, the two leading Americana dealers of the next decade, were major contenders. And the dealers who presently dominate the Americana market entered the book world just before, during, and just after the sale. As I learned more about the contemporary Americana book world, I found I wanted to know more about its history, and the history of the trade in particular. I had the good fortune to get to know some of the men who led the trade from the 1920s to the 1960s, and curiosity about antecedents in the business has led me to delve into the careers of some others. Happily, our business has strong traditions and good memories. For me, the most notable fact may be that I knew a man, well, Peter Decker, who knew Wilberforce Eames, who had worked as a young man for Joseph Sabin, a direct link with almost a century and a half of Americana and a few generations. Of the dealers I just mentioned, the one I got to know best was Peter Decker. In 1971, just starting to find my way around the book business, I had bought a group of several hundred dealers' catalogs, among which were several issued by Peter. Since he followed the same annoying practice of not dating catalogs I now follow myself, I had no way of telling they were four or five years old or that they were the last ones he had published. Instead, I waited until the next time I was in New York, an infrequent occurrence since I was still attending high school in Baltimore, and went to the given address in 57th Street, where the lobby directory still showed Peter Decker on the fifth floor. My hopes of book hunting were raised higher when a short, white-haired man in a tweed suit and smoking a pipe answered the doorbell, almost a caricature of an antiquarian bookseller. In the room behind him, I could see rows and rows of books in pleasing disarray. I started to explain my interest, but Peter said, Go away, I don't have any books and I'm not in business, and he closed the door in my face. This hardly seemed like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. How could he stand in a room so full of books the door would barely open and tell me he didn't have any? And plainly, he had not listened to a word I said. That was true enough, as I discovered when I got to know Peter. He was stone deaf and generally preferred to keep his hearing aid turned off, so he hadn't heard a word I said. In any case, I stayed away. In 1973, I was a student at Yale and had become friendly with Archie Hanna, then the curator of Western Americana in the Beinecke Library. Archie took me to see Peter, and the situation became clearer. Peter had retired from the book business by the time I first met him, and had disposed of almost all of his stock of Americana in a sale at Park Brunet in 1969. The sale did terribly. The Streeter sale was tough competition for available dollars at the time, and it made the iniquities of auction houses a leading topic in his mind. All the books I had seen on my first visit belonged to Jack Bartfield, whose store was downstairs. When Peter retired, Jack took over the space as a storeroom, but allowed Peter to keep his office there. 
Peter walked to and from the office every day until he was 85, as a New Yorker since college is only form of exercise. Once there, he read the Times and then tackled novels from Jack Stock of standard sets. In 1973, he had read all of Dickens and Trollope was well into the Waverly novels. I soon realized my first impression of Peter was completely wrong. Probably I had disturbed his post-times pre-Orley farm nap. He was, in fact, a most genial man, although one of definite opinions. He also felt his age allowed some liberties. Once, when Archie remonstrated him for being unreasonable, Peter replied, I'm over 75, I have a right to be unreasonable. I took to visiting him regularly in New York and also attended a number of auctions with him, since Peter still handled commission bids for some of his old customers, particularly the great collector of Indian books, Gregory Javich of Montreal. I was a useful appendage at an auction because I could hear what was going on at the rostrum. Once, Peter said to me at the top of his lungs, You'll have to tell me when my lot comes up, Bill. The auctioneer's no goddamn good. <laughs> I hope John Marion didn't mind this assessment. Peter, like many booksellers, fell into the business in a backward fashion. Born in Illinois in 1893, he went to Columbia and two years of Columbia Law School before a stint as a school teacher and then as a reporter. He spent six years working in New York and Atlantic City before going to work for the publisher, William Abbott. Abbott specialized in historical reprints of rare items, mainly from the Revolutionary period, which he did in such genuinely limited editions that they are very rare today. Peter wrote a biography of Benedict Arnold, which Abbott published, and did his best to make a living in the reprint business at the beginning of the Depression. Abbott died in the early 1930s, leaving Peter to settle his estate, which consisted mainly of books. This, in a small collection he was able to buy cheaply at the American Art Association auction gallery, launched him in the book business. He abandoned historical reprints, retaining only Abbott's founding date of 1898, which appeared in the front of all of his catalogs. In 1940, Peter felt sufficiently established to move his business from the basement of the Brownstone where he lived to 42nd Street across from the New York Public Library. The area around the library in Bryant Park was New York's rare book district in those days. And as a commuter to Grand Central Station myself, I wish it still was. The Ebersots were also on 42nd Street, as was Howard Mott in the Seven Gables Bookstore, while Lathrop Harper and a number of other dealers were across the park on 40th. He was already issuing catalogs, although I have not seen any of the first 16, and he did not even retain file copies of them by the time I met him. At about that time, Peter, in 1940, Peter scored his first major coup, the purchase of the George Soliday collection of Western Americana. His four catalogs of the better books from that collection, issued between 1940 and 1945, were the fifth catalogs in the index, his catalog 17 to 21, have since been reprinted as a single volume and are a standard reference, especially for Pacific Northwest material, where Soliday's collection was strongest. Sales were slow during wartime, but the Soliday enterprise went well and established Peter as a leading dealer. It says a great deal about the availability of books and the cost of doing business in the 1940s that Peter could both acquire a collection of this magnitude and turn it into a virtual livelihood for a number of years. Peter always ran a small operation. He had an office, not a walk-in shop, which may account for my initial reception in 1971. 
He tried having a secretary for a while, but keeping someone else busy got on his nerves, and he soon returned to his solitary style, typing his own letters, wrapping his own packages, and compiling his own catalogs. Since office space was still cheap in New York, his overhead was very low. He kept up a steady stream of excellent catalogs after Soliday until 1967, when Catalog 58 ended the series. I later reprinted Catalogs 22 through 50 with an index. The heart of his business was his relationship with a string of major collectors, including Edwin Stanton Fickies, then president of Alcoa, and Albert H. Greenlee, a devoted pursuer of Midwestern books and author of 100 Michigan Rarities. Both were collectors whom he helped to build collections and whose books he later bought and dispersed. Greenlee, in particular, was a friend with whom Peter traveled to Europe several times. The trips were not always easy. On their last trip to England, Greenlee was growing increasingly forgetful, and Peter spent much of the vacation shepherding him about. It was with some relief he got Greenlee to Heathrow Airport and into the international boarding area. Peter went to the bathroom and returned to find Greenlee gone. Even an official search failed to turn him up for six hours when it was discovered he had managed to accidentally board a flight from Madeira. <laughs> Peter had to go retrieve him. Possibly Mr. Greenlee had a tip he might find a copy of that great Michigan rarity, The Shanty Boy, printed in Sheboygan in 1889 in Funchal. The great patron of Peter's career was Frederick W. Beinecke. Fritz Beinecke came to collecting later than his brother Edwin, who was already a major Krauss customer for medieval manuscripts. But in 1953, he started buying Western Americana and was probably the biggest single buyer at the W.J. Holiday sale the following year. While Beinecke was an equally important customer for the Everstots in the 50s and 60s, he and Peter were good friends as well, and Peter handled his auction bids. This had its most spectacular results at the first sessions of the Streeter sale in 1966 and 67. Beinecke was in declining health and determined to add as much as possible to his collection, most of which had already been transferred to the new Beinecke Library at Yale. He gave Peter unlimited bids to buy anything Yale lacked in the first session. Peter observed to me that it was often more nerve-wracking to have unlimited bids in such a situation than to have limits, but the Yale Western Americana collection was certainly benefited. By the 1950s, Peter could and did take a leisurely approach to bookselling. He spent part of every summer in Wyoming, leasing a cabin in the near ghost town of South Pass City in the Wind River Mountains, hence his New York Corral of Westerners nickname, South Pass Pete. He was the mainstay of that lively group, which included such luminaries of good and bad Western history writing as Maurice Sandoz, Alvin Josephi, Harry Sinclair Drago, and Homer Croy. On even years, he would go book hunting in England, and odd years, he would go somewhere new. Many of these trips he took in company with Archie Hanna, a far more reliable traveling companion than Mr. Greenlee, and they even took the Trans-Siberian Railroad together. Peter was recorded many of his excursions in an entertaining series of Christmas pamphlets. I was the chauffeur in the last of these expeditions in 1976, when the three of us retraced Benedict Arnold's march to Quebec through the Maine wilderness in 1776, 200 years after the event and 48 years after Peter's biography of Arnold was issued. Peter was directly responsible for my entry into the book business. As we became friendly, I talked to him about my interest in becoming a bookseller when I graduated from college. Near the end of my sophomore year, he called me and asked if I was serious about bookselling as a career. 
One of Peter's old customers had died, and the heirs had offered the books to Peter at what he thought was a very cheap price, provided they be removed immediately. Peter was 81 and had no interest himself, but offered to act as agent and help me conclude the deal. Together we went to a New Jersey suburb and his old customer's house, a large French revival replete with faux towers and groined ceilings. It was crammed with books, so crammed it was not until the deal was concluded and we began to pack that I discovered the main library room was largely double-shelved. The final load weighed in at 20 tons. It was Peter's last deal as a bookseller, though he lived to be 94, and a happy beginning for me. I had graduated from college before the last of the collection was cataloged. The firm of Edward Everstott and Sons had a very different operation from the one-man show of Peter Decker. At its height, it had three able bookmen, Ed and his sons, Charles and Lindley. If Peter was a relatively selective dealer, the Everstotts were monopolistic. They built a vast stock over the decades, largely unseen in their catalogs or a store, and not really revealed until the sale of the stock to John Jenkins in 1975. Edward Everstott was one of the most original and talented rare book dealers this country has seen. He was a great storyteller, and it is hard and possibly not worth the effort to separate fact from fiction. I know two distinct tales about his entry into the book business. In one version, Ed was running a travel company arranging trips to South America and took a collection of Latin Americana in lieu of a bad debt. In a more colorful version, he claimed he was crossing the Brooklyn Bridge on foot when he realized a desperate need to find a bathroom. Reaching the Brooklyn side, he rushed into a garage and asked to use the restroom. There he discovered the paper was supplied from a shelf of old books by the John. <laughs> Looking them over, he discovered one that looked very old, bought it from the garage owner for 50 cents, and took it to the Lennox Library, where he learned it was a rare 16th century Mexican imprint. <laughs> he sold the book to Lathrop Harper and decided to enter the rare book business. <laughs> Whatever the truth was, Ed's first experience was in Latin Americana, and his first catalogs, beginning in 1908, were issued by the Latin American Book Company at 203 Front Street in New York. Latin Americana was not a prominent part of the Everstock business in later years, but they retained a vast amount in stock until it was sold in 1975. John Jenkins knew little about Latin Americana books, and by the time anyone who did came to work for him, most of the gems of the Everstock stock had been picked off by knowledgeable experts. Whatever its later fate, it was certainly the launching pad. After a few catalogs, Ed moved to Tarrytown and began to operate as the Hudson Book Company, shortly thereafter moving to Hewitt Place in the Bronx. In the spring of 1915, he moved to 15 West 42nd Street, later moving down the street a few doors. Ed did business as the Hudson Book Company at least through catalog 82, which incidentally was titled a special, a special plum pudding of Americana. By 1929, with Catalog 91, he was doing business simply as Edward Everstock. The sons were added in the 30s when Charles and Lindley joined the firm. Ed's big break came about 1919 or 1920. As Lindley Everstock told it to me, Ed was in the habit of hosting a Saturday afternoon poker game of booksellers in the back room of his store. Business was in the doldrums after the war, and they, seldom bothered with, they were seldom bothered with customers. The game was well underway one Saturday when a customer did show up. He claimed to be interested in Wyoming and asked if he could look around. 
Ed invited him to go ahead and return to the poker table. After about an hour, Ed thought he should check on the front room. And poking his head out, he discovered the visitor had built two tall stacks of books and was working on a third. Ed turned to his heel and addressed the players. Boys, he said, the game's over. <laughs> the customer was William Robertson Coe, the head of Johnson & Higgins, the marine insurance company, and a budding collector. Coe had gone to Wyoming for a summer, met Buffalo Bill Cody, and ended up buying the Cody Ranch. The purchase of the book collection of Nathaniel Thomas, Bishop of Wyoming in 1918, had whetted his appetite, and he was ready for more ambitious books. Ed was certainly ready to supply them. For the next two decades, the co-patronage kept the firm running smoothly through boom and depression, and the profits allowed the Everstots to begin amassing a huge stock of rare material, often in frightening multiples. The economics of the business would make it virtually impossible to operate in the same way today, even if the material was available, which of course it isn't. This is not to say that Coe was a very easy customer. He was not. A robber baron of the old school, he was used to getting his way and his price. He also had violent prejudices about areas of interest, which left some holes to fill when the collection came to Yale. Incidentally, he gave Yale the collection in order to provide an example of the hardy pioneer spirit of capitalism in the library holdings and steer students away from godless communism. He cared nothing for the Spanish Southwest, although Ed managed to sell in the 1846 New Mexico laws on the grounds that the Mexican province had included the far southern part of Colorado, south of the Arkansas River, and so it was actually a Colorado item. Ed was able to face up to Coe and negotiate with him on an equal basis. But Lindley told me he dreaded visits to Coe's office, which usually ended in a tirade about prices and Lindley being summarily dismissed. The one advantage to this was that Coe would feel bad, badly later if he'd been particularly nasty and buy everything. <laughs> if he had been more polite, he would only buy half. Coe was certainly a sucker for presentation, and the Everstots had their binders manufacture some of the most elaborate slipcases ever made for his benefit. The Henry Eld papers recording that officer's observations with the Wilkes expedition in Oregon in 1842 ended up in a box three feet long with fake spines in front and a series of drawers of all sizes built into the back. Once the shelves, uh, shelves at Coe's Gothic pile of a country house, planting fields in Oyster Bay, were filled, the rest went into storage. When Charles and Lindley did the listing for the Coe collection gift to Yale in the 40s, many of the books were still wrapped in the packages they had been shipped in. Coe remained a tough customer to the end. After the collection had been transferred to Yale and Archie Hanna was appointed the first curator of it, Jim Babb, the librarian of Yale, asked Coe if he would like to meet the new custodian of his collection. I see no reason to meet the young man, Coe said. If I need him, I will send for him. <laughs> Ed's approach to bookselling, Coe or otherwise, had always, been a, had always been the personal touch. I have an archive of his correspondence to another collector of the 20s, C.E. Voorhees, which is hilarious and illustrates his ability to cheerfully cajole hard-headed businessmen. For great collectors like Thomas Streeter, Everett de Goyer, W.J. Holliday, and others, the combination of his knowledge, character, and the quality of his stock was irresistible. It needed to be because his prices were legendary. When one customer complained it would be a long time before a book was worth what he was asking, Ed told him, I seek to discount not just time, but eternity. But in the Streeter sale catalog, where Provenance is listed, 
The name of Eberstadt appears more often than any other in some very good company. When Charles and Lindley joined their father in the 30s, they took very different approaches. Charles was a scholar who preferred cataloging to dealing with customers. The firm's really distinguished catalogs are his work. These are available today in reprint form in four volumes from catalogs 103 through 138, being issued between 1935 and 1958. Particularly notable is catalog 119, the Northwest Coast, which is really a bibliohistory of exploration and cartography up to 1840. Never modest, the Everstots published an accompanying pamphlet of letters from colleagues and customers praising their own publication. The series then reverted to being small lists in the late 1950s, after which Charles began the best catalogs the firm issued, numbers 158 to 168. These were largely done for the benefit of a few customers, Dorman David of Texas Forgery fame being one, but especially Fritz Beinecke, who bought catalog 159 California manuscripts en bloc and large chunks of others. The final catalog was issued in 1965, the year before the Streeter sale. Lindley was the opposite of Charles, gregarious and outgoing, like his father, a prodigious drinker, and as interested in fishing as he was in books. He was the roadman for the firm, traveling extensively, buying and selling. He was also an excellent bookman, but was far less interested in bibliographical niceties than his brother. Both were probably more interested in commerce than their father. Jeff Dykes told me of going into the Everstadt store in the early 50s. Ed looked out of the back office and called out, Jeff, come on in here and talk before my damn boys try to sell you something. Lindley's other interest, and here he was prescient, was American art. At this point, early paintings of the West were almost valueless by today's standard, and even Hudson River School and luminous paintings were drugs in the market. Often in partnership with Kennedy Galleries or the bookseller Jack Bartfield, Lindley handled some great American paintings in the 1940s and 50s. Ed Everstadt died in 1957. Lindley claimed his father was fine until he stopped drinking on doctor's orders and substituted Pepsi at the rate of a case a day. A mistake Lindley never made, by the way. His sons had already moved literally uptown to 888 Madison Avenue near Park Brunet in 1952. Through the 1960s, they retained their preeminent role in Americana, but in 1968, they closed the New York operation and moved the stock to New Jersey, where they both lived. After the Streeter sale, they were almost completely inactive. Their taxes were in such disarray they could not sell material without expensive consequences, having written the cost of the huge stock down to nothing. Charles's death in 1974 made a sale necessary to settle the tax questions in his estate, and John Jenkins managed to engineer their purchase in the summer of 1975 just a step ahead of a Howell and Evansall combine. I was among the first to see the Everstock stock in Austin after its arrival. Anyone interested in the purchase and transport should see John's highly amusing and I'm sure inventive telling of the story in his pamphlet, The Everstock Keeper. What no one needed to invent was the quality and extent of the decades of accumulation, all too quickly dispersed thereafter. It was the fruit of a great family saga in rare books. Lindley kept his own personal collection, which contained impressive segments of Western Americana, sporting books, and American books issued in parts. I got to know him well after 1979 and spent some very amusing afternoons trying to wheedle books out of him and stay sober enough not to pay too much. 
The books and parts were particularly fascinating, for Lindley had devoted great efforts with almost unparalleled opportunities to bring together parts of some of the most difficult works, like the United States Military Magazine or Dowdy's American Field Sports. Some of these I bought from him privately, while a large selection of his sporting and fishing books were sold at Sotheby's while he was still alive. Lindley always insisted we begin a visit by having lunch at a Chinese restaurant near his home in Montclair. It was plainly a front for something, a huge place with literally hundreds of seats, but only a few booths in the far back, occupied by beefy-looking guys who weren't even eating anything. I always expected to get machine-gunned, but Lindley was gaily oblivious of the oddity of the place, and the food, in fact, was excellent. I did buy a number of very nice books from him in the last years of his life, but it was as much fun to hear his stories, and like his father in old age, he preferred talking to selling books. He died in 1984, and the last of the books I couldn't talk him out of were sold at Sotheby's the following year. Wright Howes may be the most familiar name among his generation of Americana booksellers because of his bibliography, Usiana. For anyone not acquainted with it, Usiana, despite its rather infelicitous title, is the best single reference volume in Americana relating to the colonial period in 19th century United States history. Howes so named it because, as he pointed out, what most people mean by Americana are actually books about the North American English colonies in the United States, hence Usiana. The bibliography lists almost 12,000 titles, often with multiple editions noted, and provides exact information on collation, especially maps and plates, details in all too few other bibliographies and often not in the Library of Congress cataloging, but essential information for a book buyer far from a reference library. All of this is compiled in a kind of bibliographical shorthand to fit in one portable volume. As far as I'm concerned, it reads like a novel. Perhaps the most intriguing notes in Usiana are the indications of price houses supplied. These have been the source of much mystification among users. Howes assigned letter codes for value beginning with A, double A, and progressing through B, C, D, and double D, the last standing for superlatively rare books, almost unobtainable, worth $1,000 and upwards, that is, 1962. Obviously, we must adjust for time, but the problems lie not so much with the double D class, which are pretty, mostly pretty famous books, but further down. After a while, one starts to notice that the small, ephemeral, and evidently extremely rare items which never appear on the market and have eluded even such major collections as Yale, the Newberry, Bancroft, or the Library of Congress are almost always A, $10 to $25, or double A, $25 to $100. One must conclude that Hal's assigned a low priority to any item he'd never owned before, perhaps in hopes of buying it at the right price someday. <laughs> Hal started in the book business about the same time as Edward Everstott in the first decade of this century. Like Peter Dacker, he was a graduate of Columbia and Columbia Law School, and even practiced law briefly. He was born in Macon, Georgia in 1882, and came from a distinguished family. One uncle was a Confederate general who took Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg the day before Pickett's charge, but had to fall back for lack of support. His grandfather had been a lieutenant governor of Georgia and owned the Savannah newspaper. Another uncle, Silas Howes, was one of Ambrose Bierce's best friends and edited the collection of Bierce's journalism pieces, The Shadow on the Dial. Possibly through this literary uncle, Howes was diverted into bookselling. He was first a partner in a bookstore in Kansas City, 
later in Texas, where his uncle was editor of the Galveston newspaper and just getting a letter from Beers detailing his plans to wander off into nowhere, and then worked for other booksellers in Boston, New York, and Chicago. After service in the Illinois National Guard in France, he returned to Chicago, married Zoe Howes, and opened a bookstore in South Michigan Avenue. In 1924, he issued his first catalog and ultimately put out 73 in all, the last in 1949. The catalogs really were not Howes' style. He was as personable and charming as Ed Everstott, and he and Zoe loved to entertain. I am too young to have ever met Howes, but there are still many people around who knew him because of their permanent open house for book people in Chicago and those passing through. After 1939, the Howes did all their business out of their apartment on Chicago Avenue. So to see their books was also to be entertained by them. Those who did visit remember best the flow of Howe's conversation and repartee. One example in reference to another bookseller's high prices, probably Edward Everstott's, quote, for reasons that were no doubt sufficient to him, he priced at that level which grants to just the one right person a feeling of delicious unreality, of reaching for the unobtainable as in a fitful dream. Early in his career, House began to keep a small loose-leaf notebook, his little black book, in which he would note details of collation and points and books as he encountered them. Notebook followed notebook. I have ten of them in my collection, and I assume there must have been more at one time. And the House black book became famous in the trade for having all the answers in Americana. House must have taken infinite pains with these compilations, especially in an era when virtually none of the bibliographical tools we have today existed. He kept it well concealed, though. His nephew recalls his uncle Wright as a man who never seemed to make an effort to buy or sell a book, but always had the answer and always knew where a copy could be had. Like Everstott, Howes also had a great patron, but on a far friendlier basis. This was Everett Graff, the president of a steel company and a deeply cultured man. I don't know when their relationship began, but probably in the 1920s. From then until his death in 1964, Graff formed one of the greatest collections of Western and Midwestern Americana, which is partially commemorated, unfortunately only about a third of it, in a catalog compiled by Colton Storm and issued by the Newberry Library, the recipient of the collection, in 1968. Howells and Graff traveled all over America and Europe on book hunting trips together, and judging by Graff's accounts of their trips, of which I have the typescripts, they had a lot of fun poking around the Midwest, ferreting out books from local booksellers and private homes. The Howells operation was very much a husband-wife team. Zoe Howells was an expert bookbinder, handled all of the bookkeeping and correspondence, and minded the store when Howells was on book trips. He loved to travel, but they never traveled together. Howells did the buying and the pricing. He had no Everstadian monopolistic ideas. I've yet to discover another bookseller who had, who had anything but warm memories of his genial nature and his generosity with his knowledge. He was certainly not the biggest or most ambitious dealer of his day, but I think it's safe to say that he was probably the best liked. This generos generosity culminated with U.S. Iana. Howes must have conceived of the project as a natural extension of his little black book, probably in the late 1930s. During the latter years of World War II, he wrote out what we can think of as a first draft, which is bound in the rear of one of the bound volumes of his personal set of his catalogs. This lists some 3,000 items in abbreviated form, which suggests the developing scope of the work from his bookseller's notes. 
Real work on the bibliography did not begin until Howe's 70th birthday, when he became a part-time bookseller and was appointed a fellow in bibliography at the Newberry Library. During two years, 1952 to 1954, he spent mornings in the library working on USiana and afternoons as a bookseller. But this time, the house had moved to an apartment building owned by the Newberry, their final home in Chicago. The first edition was issued in 1954 on a somewhat unusual basis. This was planned as a published draft to invite comments, corrections, and additions. Because of this, it was hard to find a publisher. But R.R. Balker eventually agreed to produce the book on the condition that the Newberry guaranteed them against loss. In return for this, Howes gave the copyright to Newberry in return for a half share of profits after costs. The first edition sold out in about six weeks. The second edition of 1962, issued when Howes was 80, is the culmination of his half century of painstaking gleaning. Perhaps nothing illustrates this influence more than its staggering sales of 12,000 copies, surely a record for a specialized bibliography. He had hoped to produce a third edition, but a stroke in 1966 made further detailed work impossible. As Howe specifically wished that no one else revise his bibliography, and it is such a personal work it would be folly to try, I presume the Newberry Library will honor his wishes, and there will be no ill-advised third edition, at least as long as the copyright lasts. Wright and Zoe retired to Georgia in 1970, and he died there at age 95, a few months after Zoe in 1978. I've talked about only three booksellers, and without discussing such figures as Charlie Everett, Charles Hartman, Ernest Wesson, Fred Rosenstock, and others I mentioned at the beginning. I close by passing on to you a fine piece of advice Wright Howes gave a friend of mine just entering the book business in the mid-1950s. Howes must have had all those A and double A books in mind when he gave it. Young man, he said, never buy a book you've seen before. I'm fascinated by the thought of anybody finding U.S. Siena as fascinating as a novel. <laughs> and I remember a story told about James Wells of the Newberry Library, who it was said had as his bedtime book for decades the latest issue of Who's Who with all the Chicago entries circled. <laughs> Thank you for coming. There's a reception in room 523, and the exhibition, for those who haven't seen it, and uh, its catalog, which you can pick up a copy of in the back of the room, is also available for your inspection.